If you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm calling this sermon Nehemiah. I'm doing the three points is man of prayer, man of faith, man of action. Some background. Nehemiah was an outstanding servant leader of God. Nehemiah combined a steady life of prayer and a deep trust in the Lord, along with unusually careful planning, good organizational skills, and an energetic action in the 12 years of his administration over the province of Judah after his arrival. Nehemiah belonged to the group of exiled Jews who had been carried off as captives to Babylon. But upon returning to Israel to instigate the restoration of the wars, he rose to be governor within the Persian administration. Nehemiah in exile served as a cupbearer, an important task of the king of Xerxes. The events recorded take place in the 20th year of King Xerxes, which is in our calendars would be 445 BC. What else was happening in the world? This is the age of Pericles in Athens, Greece. Rome was an unknown place, an unknown quantity at this time. Nehemiah was in the capital Susa, the winter residence of the Persian king. Susa, or also called Shushan, means lilies, and it was abundance of lilies growing in that area. This is where Esther had become queen, and the prophet Daniel had received his vision of the ram and the goat in Daniel 8 verse 2. Ezra, often the two books are put together, Nehemiah and Ezra, Ezra coming first. Ezra, the priest, had returned 13 years before, essentially to revive the temple worship. He had tried to rebuild the wards, but this had been halted by the jealous neighbors and and not supported by the king's degree. The world had stopped. This was the news Nehemiah received and brought him great distress. Firstly, man of prayer. Nehemiah receives the sad notes from Hanani, possibly a brother who had escaped captivity and had gone back to Jerusalem, relating to him the state of the Jerusalem's walls, broken down and the gates burned. Nehemiah's reaction, he was intensely aware of the gravity of the situation. The reproach on God, his holy city in ruins. Evidently a devout Jew, although a cupbearer in the court of King Xerxes. He sat down and mourned for many days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Not the pagan deities of the Persian God or the neighboring tribes near Jerusalem, but to the God of heaven. A recurring title to God given in this book. Let's read the prayer again. Chapter, uh, verse 5 and 6. And I, <clears throat> and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you keep your covenant and mercy with those who, who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive to your eye and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now. Day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. His prayer shows an awareness of the character of God, the God of heaven. His attributes, great, awesome, powerful, who keeps his covenant of mercy. 
Those who he loves and observes his commandments, his statutes, a promise-keeping God of mercy. And it says in verse 6, Please be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant. He pleads with God that he would listen. He has every right, God has every right to ignore our prayers, nor him. Nehemiah is aware that his people are in a sinful state, compromised by our idolatry. He's also persistent in prayer, spending day and night many weeks. He confesses their sins, himself included. Can I read it? verse 8 and 9? Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. But if we turn to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name, namely Jerusalem. Remember, a key word in the book, not not as if God forgets, but asking him to calling to mind what God has said to Moses. Nehemiah knew his scriptures. The consequence of being unfaithful, which was exile, but reconciliation would be found returning, keep his commandments and doing them. They could be reinstated, restored to Jerusalem. These are the stipulations of a gracious agreement could restore their fortunes. The state of the walls was a visual reminder of what the state of their hearts or of the returnings and those remaining in exile was. Verse 10. Your servants redeemed by your great power and strong hand. A personification. God doesn't literally have ears and eyes or hands. This image of hands denotes God's power shown in an intimate, caring way in response to prayer. He, God, is personally involved in this venture to come. If I read verse 11. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in, of this man, for I was a cup, king's cupbearer, the man being King Xerxes. He speaks of being a servant, ready to do God's will whatever that would be, that your servant would prosper. A faith word comes many times in this letter, faith word. We will examine that in the next section. This prayer is pivotal in our understanding of Nehemiah. His prayer places him at the service of God in the restoration of his walls of the holy city. We can learn a lot about Nehemiah's prayer. He doesn't just rush into the presence of God. He first fasted and prayed. Should we fast? An interesting question, probably for another sermon. He, though, prepared himself. As children of the new covenant, we can feel we can just whisk ourselves into God's presence. He is our father. Therefore, we think we have easy access. The curtain is torn. Our Lord has paid the price for our sin. We have access to the father. That is amazingly true. But in our busy programs, we don't take time. We just deliver our shopping list of requests. No preliminary worship of who he is. 
Sometimes we forget we are talking to this great, all-powerful, all awesome God who, yes, is our Father. But nevertheless, we are sinful beings in the presence of a divine God, knowing that our sin is covered by the Lord Jesus. Could there be a lack of respect at times? Do we engage with God? Yet the Puritans had this old word invocation. That means engaging with him. We indicate and not acknowledge to whom we pray. Yes, but do we engage with him to whom we speak to? Do we, ju- do we just waltz into his presence? Do we move in? Do we desire to speak to him? It's like calling us to go to a, a king's palace. Do we, we, we try and t- talk to the, the, the footman or the servants. Can we come and talk to the king? Can we come in and talk to the king there? Sometimes we don't engage. Are we aware of his holiness, aware that his, his presence of our condition, that only through Christ we can approach this divine, majestic, glorious being? Yes, in his mercy, we can do, we can waltz into his presence. We can do bullet prayers. Um, I was, when I was preparing this sermon, actually printing it out this afternoon, suddenly, uh, <laughs> the printer decides to eat up the paper. And, uh, I think, what's that? I'm gonna, if the printer busts, I haven't got the sermon to read from. So uh, that's when you have a bullet prayer. And God in his graciousness, he was able, I don't know how, to, to uh, have this printer um, print out these papers that are all gunged up. Uh, amazingly, I don't know how that happened, but he did. He overcame that situation. Simple person. But sometimes we can feel like he... I don't know how God can can feel, but he may feel like the father of the prodigal son. The son, before he goes off into this foreign land, taking for granted his father's goodness. Forgetting that it's the indifferent, forgetting the privilege we have to be in his presence. Do we approach with adoration in our hearts this God who chose us for salvation? who should be the cause of our devotion and our love? Do we mention the attributes of our prayers, his power, his justice, his goodness, and his mercy to us, this great, awesome God who loves us, who is the creator of the world, but who loves us? For as God is glorious in his Son, in himself, his nature and his attributes, so by his hand he has manifested that, manifested that glory to us. Do we reflect that glory? Nehemiah prayed that he would prosper in being God's servant. We should pray that we should prosper not in the riches of this world, but in the riches of Christ, that in the age to come he might show that exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness to us. That continual changing, our sanctification, changing more and more into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the true riches, not the riches of this world. 
Do we plead before God like Nehemiah, an impassioned request to be heard in his prayer for Jerusalem? Do we plead for the lost, beg God to have mercy on our family, on our friends? Do we do that? Or is it sometimes, well, I'll, I'll, you certainly get to a, a guilty conscience about it and I'll start to pray for your family, but then you forget about it. You know, don't know. You can become nonchalant about it and forget about it. Do we plead for the lost? God to have mercy. Is there a fervency in our prayers? Do we feel our prayers? There's a whole area of invocation, engaging with God. Do we engage God? Do we feel our Or rather, are they mechanical? A duty to be filled, a morning chore, just to get out the way quickly. I'm going to have a shower, just get this thing out of the way, get my reading out of the way, do my, my this thing, and let's go have a shower and get have my breakfast and go to work. Do we actually engage with God? I know sometimes I do that. It's like a morning chore. I have to say that. My confession here. Are our prayers like Nehemiah, reverence, having a humbleness, humbleness, a, a, a childlike, a servant, ready to do God's bidding, aware of this God, great, awesome God covenant keeping God? Do we do that, have an honesty about our sin? Do we have keep short accounts with God? Chapter two. Can we just read chapter two? Not the whole chapter, it would be verses 1, 1 to 10. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Xerxes, when wine was before, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and, he's, and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and the gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of the father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also was beside him. How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So he pleased the king to send me. And I sent to him, furthermore, set at him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through all till I come to Judah. And a letter of Asphas, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city of the wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that man, that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. In chapter 1, verse 11, said, Nehemiah, let your, Nehemiah states, let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was a king's cupbearer. Prosper, very much a word faith. Nehemiah, let your servant prosper in this day. He had no idea how God would use him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He saw himself as a servant, as a cupbearer. 
He would be at the bidding of the king, ready to taste food to see that it wasn't poisoned. This job wouldn't be operating any superannuation schemes. But here he was waiting to do the bidding of a more mighty king. Prosper speaks of some good outcome would happen. He had a great faith that his covenant-keeping king would answer his prayer of confession for his sins and the sins of his people and a declaration of who God is, his character, his attributes. This covenant promise-keeping God of mercy who he believed would act in response to his prayer. And he does. Provision for the project is miraculously made. In his role as cupbearer, he he is an influential official in the court of King Xerxes. His downcast demeanour could have led to a reprimand or worse. His plan could have been seen as an act of sedition. But informing the king of the state of the wars, the tombs laid waste, the gates destroyed, the king simply asked what is, is his request. A bullet pair, his request is to be sent to Jerusalem, uh, is granted amazingly. Nehemiah was prepared in what would be needed. He asked for safe passage, permissions to be granted, a letter of Asmas, the keeper of the king's forest, to supply timber to rebuild the gates. He had faith that God would prosper him. He was ready with a plan when the opportunity came. A safe passage was granted, but a small army accompanying him disturbed Sambalat and Tobiah, neighboring kings. Why is this cupbearer here? What is he doing here? If you can read the further part of the chapter from 11 to 20. So I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I rose in the night and I had a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate and to the serpent well and to the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under, under to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests and the nobles and the officials or the others who did the the work. Then I said to them, you see the, the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, and we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the the hand of, of my God, which had been good upon me, and also on the king's words, and that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, the the Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshun, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at this and despised us and said, what is this thing they are doing? Will you rebel against this king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we have, we are his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. His arrival could have been met with suspicion on the part of the inhabitants of Jerusalem at this point. He wasn't the governor. He was the cupbearer at this point in the court of King Xerxes. What was he doing here? 
you may report back to Xerxes unfavorably. Nehemiah makes no new announcement of his arrival. He just calmly reviews the wars at night. It's by himself. I don't think it's with any soldiers. Just going around there on a donkey. Not to bring attention to himself, inspecting the gates. Then he reports back to the Jews, nobles and officials, seeing their distress over the state of the wars. Now, because we read from 17b. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. The hand of God was on him. He had been granted permission by the king to do this. He gives a rallying call to the Jews. Let us do this. In all this faith had been the key. Nehemiah had focused on the task. The hand of God had been on him. He had uh, carried out this, this journey to Jerusalem and inspected the walls by night. But their plans hadn't gone unnoticed. Sambalat, the local kings, scorned the project. What are they doing? Are you rebelling against the king? In response, uh, Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven, not your gods, again, that faith word, prosperous, God is with us. We are here, his servants. You have no right here because of your heritage background. They have no right to Jerusalem because of their background, their, their tribal background. They apostate. They were, had a confused worship of, of Yahweh and uh, idols, pagan idols. He prays to the God of heaven, not your gods. Again, that faith word, prosper. We are your servants. You have no right to, to be here because of your heritage. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Nehemiah had faith in the covenant-keeping God, this God of mercy, this awesome God in control of all things in his creation will respond to his prayers. He had a hope, a certainty, invoking his mightiness as to act. The adoration, the worship due to his person and confession that they were sinners. Nehemiah pleading to him that as a servant of God, he would prosper him. Mighty God, the mighty God would act on this according to who he is, a mighty God. It was God's desire to rebuild his holy city. The broken walls were a reproach on his character, an affront to him, a subject of scorn of pagan kings. Nehemiah will be familiar with the writings of Daniel and Ezekiel, especially Ezekiel 36 36 verse 3, during his exile in Persia. Thus says the Lord God, on this day that I will cleanse you from iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. Ezekiel prophesying about this restoration. He knew the evidence of things not seen, the granting of the request in the first place, provisions, his safe passage, the implementation of the plan to rebuild the wall were all of God. Faith is trusting in God for the outcomes of things hopeful, a firm conviction he would bring this about if it was his will. Let's turn to the next point I'm going to mention. Nehemiah, the man of action. He was a great organizer. The hand of God was on him. He gets down to the practicalities of rebuilding the wall. He organized his families, guilds of tradesmen, 
individual allocated to repair the wall, the gates, and important strategic points of the wall. People turn their hands to working with bricks and stone and mortar. If I can just turn to chapter 3, verse 8, just one of the, the, the families there. This is Eziel. Next to him, Eziel, the son of Haparam, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him was Hanai, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Everybody was on board, even these perfumers. I don't think they'll be used to building with bricks and mortar. I think it's something more daintier occupation. Everyone was on board. But somebody could say, I'm of retirement age. I can't be involved with this. And he would say, get back to the wall. Get going on that. There's no retirement age in the kingdom of God. If you cannot work on the wall, you can always pray. I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. But it happened when Sambalat heard that we were building, rebuilding the wall, and he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete in a day? Will they revive the stones and the heaps of rubbish, stones that they are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside himself and said, Whatever they build, if they even a fox goes on it, it will break down their stone wall. The start of the rebuild met with fury and anger from their neighbors, Sambalat and Tobiah and Goshen. They mocked him. What are those feeble Jews targeted at the builders, but also at their God? Will they offer sacrifices to this God of heaven, this God you cannot see? But in front of their very eyes, this God of heaven had empowered the Jewish inhabitants to rebuild the wall. Here was evidence that he existed. His awesomeness, his power, his strength demonstrated through the toils of his people. Isn't that the case for our work, our witness, giving it evidence to who God is. There was also a fear that a fortified Jerusalem in a province ruled by King Xerxes will be an embarrassment. Will they offer, offer sacrifices, another jibe? They feared that through the reinstallation of the worship of Yahweh would further empower his people. His people, Idols had no match for the real God of heaven. Also as a Aspostite tribes, they would meet with Yahweh's wrath. Nehemiah responds is a prayer. I'm going to read this prayer for verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them a, as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out for, from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. They were fearful of the, the worship of Yahweh being reinstalled and had insulted God. And Nehemiah prays that they will have a reproach on their heads, cover their iniquity, and their sin will not be blotted out because they were their jibes were against Yahweh, the God of heaven. They build the wall to half its height, re-establishing the perimeter. 
Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshen are joined by other tribes in opposition of the strengthening of Jewish presence. Ammonites and Ashites come and join them. Again, countered by prayer and, and a watch, Nehemiah makes these to defend. If you can read Nehemiah 6 to 14. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. Now it happened that Sambalite, Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashenites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed they had, and that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together and come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made it our prayer to our God and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judas said, the strength of the laborers are failing and there is much rubbish that we are not able to build. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came and they told us 10 times from wherever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings and I set people according to their families with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters and your houses. The tribes had then conspired to undermine the will of the, of the builders. The, the complaint that the strength was failing was too much rubbish. I don't know what they meant by that, having too much rubbish there. I don't know if they're rebuilding a wall. That their adversaries were secretly penetrating their defences. Nehemiah post guards to reassure their fears were unfounded. That wasn't the case. It's all imaginary. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, evidence of things seen. The workers had forgotten the substance of things hoped for, the restoration of God's name, this promise, covenant-keeping God, who had already prospered this project, his desire to rebuild the wall of his city. Nehemiah states, remember him. Don't be afraid of them. Hasn't the God delivered you from the slavery in Egypt, provided you... In in the desert, hasn't he proven himself to you? This God who acts, can't you see this half-finished war that God has, has through the, your efforts, brought about the evidence of things seen? Can't you remember what God has done? He's done this for you. He's delivered you from Egypt, from, from slavery, from, from, uh, from bondage, and he's brought you through amazing things, through the Sinai, for the Red Sea, through provisions in the Sinai, in the desert, given you food, manna from heaven, water from the rock. He's given this to you. And you don't remember this. Don't you? Are you afraid of this? Are you afraid of these, these silly little tribes who say all sorts of rumors, spread rumors upon you, which are totally unfounded? And you know, so there may be many who conspire against us, but do you know who's on our side? The God of heaven, Yahweh. The builders have started looking to themselves, not to God, in the build. As soon as they do that, their strength ebbs away and irrational fears bubble up. 
It's the same for us. Will God leave them to the mercy of these tribes? Their faith had gone. Unbelief had them. The problem of unbelief. What affected the wall builders can affect us. We live in a culture which mainly doesn't believe in God. They see the church as a quaint anachronism behind the times and irrelevant. We are awash with philosophies of unbelief, evolution, humanism, and more recently, woke culture that deny the supernatural, that a living God can enter his creation in Christ. We can be affected by this unbelief, forgetting that God is my strength and my song, like the Jewish builders who fell foul of Satan and Tobias' conspiracies. We look to ourselves, not God, living in a world of self-worship. We can be affected by that. We can be polluted by that. San Belai and Tobiah and their cronies are a type of Satan, the accuser of the brethren, his agents. They demean the work of the builders, seeing it as restoring God's Holy Spirit evidence of his power and his purpose to prosper the people of God, undermining pagan worship. Satan sees, sees this, this rebuilding of the Jerusalem as an incursion into his territory, hence the opposition. The opposition first voiced by Sambalat and Tobiah. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves in a day? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete in one day? Will they restore these stones and heaps of rubble? They, casting, they cast doubts on God's work and the ability of his servants to carry it out. These are reoccurring taunts against God's people throughout the ages in the desire to further God's kingdom. Satan, similarly, can voice his opposition to the restoring of God's work at Christ Baptist Church. You can say, what are those feeble Christians doing? Repairing an old church roof, bringing these old stones back to life again. When only a smaller group of people go to it, what is the point of that? Becoming an independent church, big deal, engaging in ministry, outreach, children's work, street evangelism, stores of the fate, having a phone line put in. Do they see themselves as a viable witness? I want these people in Christ to remain spiritually dead. And like the Jewish war builders, we can believe his jibes. We become, become discouraged. Unbelief can set in. We are not up to the task, doubting God. But we see the evidence. We see the evidence here. A repaired roof upon, up a hall in the state of repair. Ministry is opening up after COVID. Coffee on the Lord. Now the Christ faith. God willing, door-to-door work, open-air preaching. Chris is working in the schools. We're, the ministries are opening up again. We see now in our lives, this ministry, evidence of a supernatural God wanting to prosper his work. Do you think for one minute you could do this by yourselves in your own strength? Do you think for one minute you can do this? But we've seen the evidence of God working through us to build his church here in Christ. Okay, we have a physical building. But 
God would say, why would I restore the church for no reason? Is it just spending money for no apparent, just a waste of time, just for the sake of it? This village population is growing. They need the gospel. And should I not pity Kreitch, this growing village in which one more than thousand people who cannot dis- know between their right hand and their left and have much livestock, as Jonas said, but I can say they have property and many cars, but they're completely lost, spiritually dead. Now is the time for the gospel. We are not caretakers. We're not going to say, well, it's not the right time here. There's no revival happening. There's no other movement of the spirit. No, we'll pray for revival, but it's not going to really happen. Now is the time. We are not caretakers. Now is the time to go out with the gospel, to go out to the door to door. Non-Christians won't come into this church. They have no point. They can't see the point of it. It's not on their agenda. We have to go out there and invite them in to the church. The importance of door-to-door work is essential. The Jewish builders had lost sight of God and what God had already achieved. We can lose sight of God. What is achieved for us now? Here. And will achieve for us building a viable gospel church in a growing community. There's so many, uh, I don't know if you know Kreitch, but uh, we have vast uh, community of new houses up in that area, up t- going out towards South Wingfield. We have houses being built down here. Uh, in Woodviews, there's estates there. There's houses, Bull Bridge, like a new city being built there. Lots and lots of opportunities, lots of people there, maybe Christians coming in, but many non-Christians who don't know the right from the left. And it's now is a time for Christ Baptist Church. And I will say to you, the Lord Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. May God bless us in our ministry here to reach out to this community. And we just thank you for how much God has done for us so far in preparing us for this ministry. Shall we pray? Gracious God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for Nehemiah. And we just pray, gracious God, that we will not look to the evil one who would want to distract us from this work. Forgive us our unbelief, forgiving that, forgiving us that this is a supernatural work. It's for the power of the Holy Spirit that we go out to preach your word. We can do nothing without you. You have provided for us this building, this new roof, this, this, this upper hall, place where we can worship. Prayed for these open, open doors into the school, into the community. We can have a, 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 a store at the fate. We're not shut down for preaching your gospel. We thank you for that. We can do uh, open air preaching. We can have the seekers group. We have many avenues in ministry. Thank you for Chris, our, our pastor. Gracious God, help us to be your servants in this community to further your gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.